Hello and welcome to the Wealth Chat, a podcast brought to you by Kleinwort Hambers. In this series, we will be helping listeners make sense of the world of wealth. Why does this all matter? And why does it specifically matter to you? All the things that you wish you knew but didn't ever have the nerve to ask. This is your chat. My name is Fahad Kamal, Chief Market Strategist at Kleinwort Hambers, and I will be hosting today's episode. Today, we're looking at how the current geopolitical climate might impact the financial landscape, and as a result, the investment decisions we make. Joining me in the studio today is Mohammed Shakir, our Chief Investment Officer and Deputy CEO, to help go through some of these issues. Welcome, Mo. Hi there, Fahad. Mo, so obviously geopolitics is an enormously important part of society, of, of the world we live in, etc. And surely it must impact how we invest. Well, geopolitics definitely dominates the headlines, uh, but it certainly doesn't dominate financial markets. Uh, the historical evidence would suggest actually that geopolitics rarely matters in uh, investment returns over the long run. That sounds incredible. How, how is that possible that something can happen geopolitically, like a war, for example, that obviously is bad for the economy, etc., etc., but that has little impact on investing in markets and how, and how we should think about uh, our decision making? Yeah, I mean, what you're describing there is is the intuition uh, that you would expect the geopolitical crisis, uh, some tensions and conflicts to lead to uh, lower returns or perhaps even negative returns. But actually, the data doesn't support that. If you look at the actual evidence, it would suggest that geopolitical crises in the short run might have an impact, but over the medium to long term, they're not the drivers of returns. But surely throughout the, the decades, we've had we've had a number of wars, we've had serious dislocations that have existed because of um, of conflict and, and the like. Uh, and, sh- and really, that, that wouldn't have impacted um, returns? Well, look, let's, let's look at the data together, just to unpick some of these arguments. So we've done some analysis uh, that uh, investigated all major geopolitical tensions, uh, global geopolitical tensions. And what we observed is that on average, uh, the markets are up approximately 13% 12 months later. So essentially, these geopolitical tensions didn't lead to negative returns on average. They actually led to positive returns. So hold on. So so you're saying that you've analyzed a number of geopolitical conflicts going back decades. And on average, a year following them, markets tend to be up 13%. Correct. So let's let's look at some examples. Um, Cuban Missile Crisis is, is, is a major example in terms of geopolitical tensions. You know, Indeed, we, it was the closest the world ever got to nuclear Armageddon. Exactly. That was in the early 60s, in 1962, to be exact. And actually, what we observed is that the markets were up in the next month, three months, six months, and 12 months. Actually, financial markets didn't react negatively to that geopolitical uh, incident. There are other incidents, as I mentioned, more often than not, actually, the markets uh, are up 12 months later. But if you look at other examples, the US invasion of Iraq in 2003 is another example. The Korean Wars in the 1950s, uh, the Soviet-Afghan War in 1979, all are examples of arguably major geopolitical tensions, but yet market 12 months later actually delivered robust and strong returns. 
Yeah, that's that's incredible statistics. I haven't actually thought about it like that. And you know, some of these things that you mentioned, of course, were were huge. I mean, the Soviet-Afghan war uh, broke out in late 1979. And I remember that was actually a time of serious market stress because gold hit its all-time highest price in inflation-adjusted terms. Yeah, and it will come as a major surprise, perhaps, uh, to you and maybe some of the people when think about it counterintuitively, is that the markets were up 30%. This is the stock market was up 30% 12 months later. Incredible. So, so really, I mean, you know, are there times where we're actually, you know, where geopolitical events do have a negative impact? I mean, I can, I can see that on average is thirteen percent, but is that sort of always the case? We should just buy in whenever there's a geopolitical event. Yeah. So, I say on average, and, and let's let's examine this average. Essentially, seventy-five percent of the time the market is up, but there are incidents, so one in four or 25% of the time where the markets are down. And the most notable example is uh, September 11th attacks. So obviously, one of the largest terrorist attacks we've witnessed in recent history, and the markets 12 months after the attack were down by about 16%. So that if you just look at the data alone, that would suggest that that geopolitical event may have led to losses. But there were other things taking place at the time. So why was the market down 16% after that? If it, it, it surely had to do with the, with the enormous tensions that resulted from that event. Well, actually, the market would have likely uh, declined and experienced losses irrespective of the September 11th attacks. And the reason I say that is the early 2000s were literally on the back of the big dot-com boom that eventually became a bust. Essentially, markets were extremely overvalued. We were facing a global recession. And those two dynamics led to a market correction, not just in the US, which is obviously where the September 11th attacks took place, but actually globally, we saw a major correction in financial markets. That's incredible. So, so in, a, in, a, in a way, it's almost that 9-11 was just happened to coincide with a with a downturn in markets it actually was neither the cause nor the driver or catalyst yeah i mean it's it's obviously difficult to say what would have happened to markets had september 11th not taken place but it's fair to say that actually the bear market that we experienced in 2000 and 2001 was already uh, ripe for declines and that was already taking place irrespective of that specific event so just to be clear you know, and and I and I'm convinced by your data, as you know. I I I like I like you know to 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 have evidence behind all these things, and surely the evidence is is pretty compelling. So, is it fair to say that geopolitics tends not to matter at all in the short term, if you define the short term by by one year? Look, ultimately, what drives financial returns is the robustness of the companies that are delivering those returns, and geopolitics, if they are to derail some of those fundamentals, then yes, they could have an impact. But more often than not, they don't derail those fundamentals because companies adjust their businesses, they change their supply chains in light of the geopolitical tensions, and therefore respond to the prevailing environment, and as a result can still deliver robust profits and therefore returns. Well, it's true. You know, now that you think about it, and given the fact that we are um, recording this episode, you know, three or so years after two of the most uh, notable geopolitical events in recent times, i.e. Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, 
prior to those, almost everybody would have expected that to have a huge negative impact on markets. But here we are, you know, three or so years later, and that hasn't been the case. Yeah, and actually, if you look at the last three years, if you just read the headlines, uh, they've been defined by a lot of political uncertainty, uh, a lot of political negativity around the prospects for uh, the UK economy and even the global economy. Yet financial returns from the FTSE 100, the UK equity market, is up 14% since the referendum. And so those are actually handsome returns. If you were just to look at the data alone, without reading the headlines, you would have thought that actually there is no uncertainty in the UK economy, and therefore corporations are doing reasonably well. You know, I I, I take your point about how, um, you know, in the short run, these things don't matter, etc., etc. But surely something like Brexit, uh, and I understand that we're we're not anywhere close to having a resolution on that, but surely something like Brexit, which is deep and transformational and will have an impact, not just for the next year, but but for potentially for decades to come, something as transformational as that must matter. To, to, to markets? It may have an impact, and obviously that impact is still unknown because we still don't have visibility on what Brexit could look like over the short run. But if you just look at the UK equity market over the long arc of its history, uh, it's experienced many uh, major changes to its political setup. Um, you know, for a very long time, uh, the UK wasn't part of the EU. The EU didn't even exist for a big chunk of time when you look at UK equity markets. Um, Equally, we've had major recessions, we've had major financial crises, yet actually UK equities have delivered on average 7% a year. And so that shows that... that, And that's after inflation. That's net of inflation. So these are returns over and above the inflation rates of those different periods. And that, again, would would suggest that irrespective of the underlying politics, that the equity market or the stock market can still deliver returns subject to a robust corporate uh, environment that can deliver those profits. Yeah, and indeed, I guess if you look at that, you know, if you look at that long term uh, sort of data, then if you call it, let's say, from the term for the last century, 120 years or so, I mean, that's obviously been during periods of tremendous geopolitical change and cultural change and socioeconomic change and change of every kind. Correct. And that's why whilst Brexit today feels like a major change, and it is uh, relative to recent history, relative to long run history, it's arguably not that big. If you think about it, then that you know that if geopolitics doesn't really matter, and and in the long run, as you said, companies tend to find ways to adapt, maneuver, evolve to the new situation, and and find ways to become profitable. Um, what really does matter? What should we worry about as as investors? What is what are the things that you know that are the pitfalls? Yeah, interestingly, actually, and this relates to politics, is that. What investors should be concerned about is a a mood of over-optimism and perhaps even euphoria. If the prevailing mood is one of the world is rosy, everything is fine, markets will continue to do well, that should be a cause for concern. However, when there is negativity or caution or concern or pessimism, that is actually an opportunity in markets. That presents an opportunity for the stock market to deliver strong returns. That over bearish and over negative mood can be an opportunity for markets. So the concern should be when there is 
optimism rather than pessimism. And what about uh, inflation and 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 growth and that those kinds of things? So look, the the if we talk about these in the collective as the prevailing economic environment, uh, they do have a role to play. Um, obviously, inflation data comes out every month. Growth data comes out regularly, and it, then it's revised. There's a lot of data available, but one has to step away from sort of that noise, if you like, that that constant stream of data uh, that comes on on a daily basis and look at the big picture. And if the prevailing environment is one of expansion, then that's usually supportive of equity markets. If it's one of slowdown or contraction, that's less supportive. And those can be measured by looking at only a handful of actual economic data rather than the plethora that we get on a daily basis. No, I, I hear that. We're almost inundated with, with too much data uh, sometimes. I would be remiss in my job as host in 2019 discussing geopolitics if I don't push you on, on some of the, the issues at hand as we sit here in London regarding Brexit. In many ways, it has been the defining issue in, in the media and, and, in, and in public life for the last three years. And I just can't help shake the fact that this will, you know, this time might be different uh, in terms of its impact on us and society, irrespective of all the previous history. What what do you what do you say about that? Well, look, you're saying we're having this conversation in 2019. If we were having it in 2016, and we said that Brexit was going to be voted for, that we were going to have a rise of populist governments, most notably in the largest economy in the world, in the US, with Donald Trump, then if we looked at that global or geopolitical narrative, maybe the natural instinct would have been run for the hills, this is uncertain, this is negative, but actually the opposite has happened. You know, I gave you the example earlier, just in the UK alone, since the referendum, the market was up 14%. Actually, if you include the dividends, so therefore the total returns, it's close to 32%. These are very attractive returns against the geopolitical uncertainty or geopolitical backdrop. Annualizes at about 10% a year, which is a great, great outcome. Exactly. And actually, you know, the some of those returns have been driven by currency fluctuations. But if you look at companies that don't have that currency exposure, so those that are more domestically focused within the UK, they've equally delivered uh, strong returns. But surely, I mean, and this comes up in client meetings often, you know, that how should our investment decisions be impacted or affected by potential policy changes in the event of a Labour government or a Tory government for that matter? There are many uh, facets to looking at what different parties or combinations of parties could do. But if you, again, just look at the hard data, if you just are totally neutral in terms of the uh, political analysis, the hard data would suggest that it doesn't matter who's in power, whether it's conservative or labor, from an equity return perspective. Again, looking through the history since 1900, so we're looking at about 119 years worth of history here, the average return for the conservative-led uh, economies, if you like, was 7.6% a year. Uh, that's in terms of UK equity return? UK equity. For labor, it was approximately the same. It was 7.7%. So mm. actually, if you just look at the data alone, it says it doesn't matter 
who's in power now. Again, these are averages. One has to, you know, look underneath the surface there to see some of the dynamics at play. And some prime ministers have uh, led uh, stronger returns than others. But broadly speaking, both parties have delivered the same average return. So essentially, we should, in a way, almost uh, almost disregard the 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 noise that's generated from geopolitics. It appears from your data that it's largely a red herring. Yes, disregarding it is uh, definitely uh, a prudent thing to do because if you take it into account, you're going against the historic data. And yes. It can be different. There will be times when uh, things will be different to history. But chances are that the uh, economic performance and the equity market performance is likely to be influenced by other factors other than politics. And those are the ones that one should be paying attention to rather than spending too much time in political analysis. On that note, I think, uh, I think we've finally got some clarity on the whole issue. Thank you very, very much for joining us in the studio today, Mo. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Wealth Chat. To make sure that you never miss an episode, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. I'm Fahad Kamal, and on behalf of Kleinwood Hambros, thanks for listening. This podcast is not a personal recommendation or investment advice. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. It is not intended that this podcast is distributed in or into the United States of America. This podcast is issued by the following companies in the Kleinwort Hambras Group. In the United Kingdom by SG Kleinwort Hambras Bank Limited, which is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In the Channel Islands by SG Kleinwort Hambras Bank CI Limited, which is regulated by the Jersey Financial Services Commission. SG Kleinwort Hambras Bank CI Limited Guernsey branch is also regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Both entities are also authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority in respect of UK regulated mortgage business. In Gibraltar, SG Kleinwort Hambras Bank Gibraltar Limited is authorised and regulated by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission.